Well, please make sure you have your message notes from your bulletin along with a pen to uh, fill in those blanks and jot down some notes today. We are going to be in John chapter 4, so make sure you have a Bible in hand as well. We've got a couple of our ushers uh, who'd be happy to come down the aisle and get you a copy of the Bible. Uh, so just raise your hand if you need a Bible in your hands today. Remember, don't just take my word for it. See it for yourself right there in the Word of God. Maybe you heard about the avid hiker uh, who is hiking his favorite mountain ridge. And this was a ridge he had hiked a hundred times. And so the guy was as sure-footed as a mountain goat. But on this particular day, he got a little careless. And he slipped and he fell off the edge of the mountain. As he was sliding down quickly down the side of that rock face, he was grasping as quickly as he could for some sort of sturdy branch or something to hold on to that would break his fall. And thank the Lord, he was able to grab a sturdy branch. And as he was holding on to this branch, he did what you and I would probably do in his situation. He cried out to the great Savior in the sky. He called out, Help! Save me! Save me! And to his surprise, he heard an answer back in just about a second. The voice came back from heaven. Yes, I can save you. And he said, Lord, wonderful, save me. He says, yes, I can save you. Do you believe in me? And he said, yes, I believe in you, Lord. I believe in you, but I can't hold on to this branch much longer. Save me. God responded, you're right in calling me Lord. And I will save you. But you really have to believe in me. Now, here's what I want you to do. Let go of the branch. The man paused for a second or two and then yelled back, Is anyone else up there? That man didn't have much faith in God's ability to save or heal, did he? But today, as we're in John 4, we're going to look at an example of a man who had a whole lot of faith and belief in God's ability to heal. Amen? And so, we are going to learn a lot from this gentleman we'll be looking at today here in John chapter 4. He's a royal official. His story is pretty captivating, and I know you're going to be blessed by this today. Well, over the past two weeks, we've taken a closer look at Jesus' amazing ministry in Samaria. That's talked about in the first two-thirds or so of chapter 4 of John. And we saw that in those days, Samaria was really no man's land. And so Jesus had been doing some ministry down in Judea, the southern part of Israel. The Judean Jews uh, had no interest or desire into going into Samaria. And in the north, we had Galilee, the region where Jesus had grown up. The Galilean Jews also had no interest in going south into Samaria. And so Jesus, when he made his way from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north, he made his way through Samaria. And we saw in those days, uh, people didn't like to step foot in Samaria, especially Jewish rabbis. No self-respecting Jewish rabbi would ever step foot in Samaria. But Jesus wasn't your average self-respecting rabbi, was he? Thank God he stepped foot into Samaria and went on a divine mission to that well where he met a Samaritan woman and transformed her life. And we saw there in John 4 as Jesus transformed the life of the woman at the well. He really broke down four barriers. First of all, he broke down that barrier of hostility between Jews and Samaritans. Then he broke down that wall of discrimination between women and men. 
And he broke down, thirdly, that wall of prejudice uh, between the so-called worthy and the unworthy. And last week we saw he broke down the wall of separation between the sacred and the secular. God cannot be contained in a church building. Amen? Aren't you thankful for that? Sometimes you've got to cry out to God and you're not in a church building. It's like, oh shoot, I'm not at church when I had a crisis. I guess God can't help me, right? You're hanging from that tree branch off a cliff. Uh, God can't help me because I'm not in a church building, right? Wrong. (laughs) God can help you anywhere because He is not confined to a specific church building. He is a very big God who fills the heavens and the earth so He can be accepted and He can be worshipped and He can be obeyed anywhere on earth. In fact, He should be accepted and He should be worshipped and He should be obeyed anywhere on earth. According to verse 40, Here in John chapter 4, after pouring out His grace on the woman at the well, Jesus spent two days in Samaria leading others to salvation. According to verses 41 and 42, many Samaritans became believers. They came to believe that Jesus really is the Savior of the world. Amen? And that's where we pick up today in verse 43 of John chapter 4. So please follow along in your Bibles once again beginning in verse 43. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they also had been there. Once more, Jesus visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come, down, come now before my child dies. Jesus replied, You may go. Your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, The fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and all his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed having come down from Judea to Galilee. May God bless us as we study and apply His Word to our lives today. Amen? Amen. Well, remember what happened in the first three verses of John chapter 4. Jesus had been doing ministry there in southern Israel, there in the region of Judea, that region that surrounded the capital city of Jerusalem. And remember there early in the chapter, it's talking about Jesus' teaching and talking about Jesus' disciples baptizing. And so there he was in John the Baptist's backyard, but he gets to a point where Jesus has more crowds coming to him than John the Baptist has coming to him. And Jesus' disciples get to a point where they're actually baptizing more people than John the Baptist is baptizing. And so it hadn't been too long, just a chapter or two back, that the religious leaders were chewing out John the Baptist because they didn't like him being some sort of rogue priest out there doing what he was doing. And they certainly didn't like Jesus as some rogue rabbi going out doing what he's doing. So as the crowds begin to swell around Jesus, 
The Pharisees in Judea take note of this, and so we read in those first three verses of chapter 4, when Jesus found out that the Pharisees knew his crowds were getting bigger than John the Baptist, he decided to head north into Galilee. Jesus wasn't one of those rabbis that got out of the kitchen when the heat was turned up too high. He didn't have any trouble with people criticizing him or coming against him or persecuting him, but the timing wasn't right, so he decided to head north into Galilee, and as we saw over the last couple of weeks, Jesus took that two-day detour going through Samaria, and it's a good thing He did. He transformed many lives there in Samaria. We read here in verse 44 something that seems a little bit out of place. The Gospel writer John tells us, Now Jesus Himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Interestingly, all four Gospel writers quote Jesus sharing this proverb. This was a common proverb in their day. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. No prophet is accepted in his own country. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all mention Jesus sharing this with his disciples. But the interesting thing is, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all share that Jesus mentioned that to the crowds and to his disciples when he got booted out of Nazareth, his hometown where he grew up. And that makes sense in Matthew, Mark, and Luke because... He's kicked out of his town and his disciples are a little confused. And so Jesus quotes the proverb, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But why does John have Jesus quoted as saying that here? It seems out of place because Jesus has just had a wonderful, successful ministry in Samaria. If you go to the very next verse, verse 45, you learn that as he arrives in Galilee, his home region, the area where he'd grown up, they give him a very warm reception. They like Jesus. The crowds are gathering around Jesus. In fact, it would be about another year before the crowds in Galilee in mass began to start turning on him. And so why does John mention it here? Well, I believe he mentions it for this reason. I believe he mentions it because as Jesus was coming into Galilee, he wanted his disciples to know when we get there, we're going to get a warm reception. Uh, When we get there, we're going to have a lot of fans and the crowds are going to swell and there's going to be a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of excitement, but I want you to know that will not last. You see, we're going to have a lot of fans, but they're going to be fair weather fans. And we're going to be having people celebrate and cheer the name of Jesus today, but tomorrow they're going to be turning on me. So don't get your hopes up too high. We're going to get a nice reception, but it just won't last. According to verse 45, when Jesus arrived in Galilee, the Galileans did welcome him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they also had been there. So that begs the question, what had these Galilean Jews seen Jesus do in Jerusalem that got them really excited about Jesus? And so to get that answer, you just flip back a couple pages in your Bible. If you flip back to John chapter 2, you'll find about midway through the chapter, Jesus does something that caught everybody off guard there at the Passover feast in Jerusalem. Remember what he did? Made himself a little whip. And what did he do with that whip? He drove out the money changers and all the crooks in the temple courts that were ripping people off as they were coming to sacrifice their own lamb there for the Passover feast. And so Jesus drives out all the crooks. He drives out all the money changers. He drives out all the merchants from the temple courts. Evidently, some of these Galilean Jews had been there and seen Jesus do that. But I think John, the Gospel writer here, has something else in mind that even more of those Galilean Jews had seen when they had gone to that Passover feast. 
Look at something, a verse we oftentimes miss there in John chapter 2. Look at verse 45. It says, when Jesus arrived, wrong verse, look there in verse 23, I should say, of chapter 2. If you look at verse 23, it says, while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. Isn't that interesting? John tells us just real quickly there in verse 23 of chapter 2, while he's there at the Passover feast, he actually performs some miracles. John doesn't give us any specifics, so we have to just kind of guess. Maybe he opened the eyes of a few blind men. Maybe he healed a few cripples. Whatever it was, he was publicly doing some miracles of healing, and there were Galilean Jews who saw him do this. And so when he comes into town in Galilee, people are recognizing Jesus. I saw that rabbi. I saw him there in Jerusalem. I even saw him heal some people. Come on, you got to see this guy. He's pretty amazing. Verse 46, Jesus makes his way to the town of Cana, located just about four miles from his hometown of Nazareth. And Cana, remember, was the town where Jesus had performed his first miraculous sign, which was turning water into wine. And once there in Cana, Jesus is approached by a man who is desperate for Jesus' help. He's described in verse 46 as a royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. We're not told his name. We're just told that this man was a royal official. And so in all likelihood, he was Jewish. And in all likelihood, he was a royal official serving in the court of King Herod. So this wasn't King Herod the Great. This was his son, uh, King Herod uh, Antipas, most likely. And so there he is serving King Herod, and he comes to Jesus. According to verse 47, he went to Jesus and begged him, to come and heal his son, who is close to death. Now, when John tells us that the royal official begged Jesus to heal his son, uh, that's a good translation of the Greek word used here. Because the Greek word used here is a form of the word ask. But it's a very interesting form of the word ask. Just like in English, in English there are several tenses we can use that are past tenses. Uh, there's past tenses that refer to a one-time action, and other Past tenses that refer to an ongoing action in the past. The same is with Greek. And so in Greek, what do you think? When the man asked Jesus, do you think he asked him just one time? Or do you think he asked him repeatedly to heal his son? And the answer is he asked him repeatedly. The imperfect tense is used here. So you could translate it this way. The royal official came to Jesus and he asked and asked again. And asked over and over and over, Jesus, please come back to Capernaum and heal my son. Please heal my son. Please heal my son. I beg of you. He asked Jesus over and over again. And that's why the NIV chooses to translate that as he begged Jesus to heal his son. And when Jesus responds in verse 48, At first glance, it doesn't seem like a very complimentary response. Notice what Jesus says in verse 48. He basically says, you guys won't believe a thing until I show you a miraculous sign, right? That's not really a very nice thing to say, it doesn't seem at first glance. It doesn't seem like that's a very nice thing. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. We would expect Jesus, especially after being so nice to the Samaritan woman at the well, to say something like this. Wow! 
you're really persistent. You've got a lot of perseverance. Can you be a speaker at this year's Perseverance Conference? Because you didn't come and just ask me once. You're asking over and over again. And if it seems like I'm not paying attention, you keep on asking. That's some good perseverance. Good for you. Jesus doesn't say, wow, I can tell you have a lot of faith in me. Uh, You're not giving up hope after not getting a response the first time. So you've got a lot of faith. Good for you. That's maybe what we would expect, but Jesus doesn't say that. (laughs) You people won't believe anything unless you see miraculous signs and wonders. So who is Jesus saying this to? It says there in the text, doesn't it? He said this to the man. But some Bible scholars wonder if he's saying it more to the crowd that's listening to this whole conversation. So what is it? Is he saying this to the man or is he saying it to the crowd? I think he's saying it to both, right? He's saying to the man, you need to see a miraculous sign to truly believe, but the crowd, he's saying the same thing to them. Well, I think Jesus is really making a really important point here. Let me ask you, does the royal official believe that Jesus could heal his son in a way that no doctor could? Does he believe that? I think so. He's persistent, right? He keeps asking Jesus over and over again. Well, I believe that. But in that moment, does he demonstrate saving faith in Jesus? Does he really believe in that moment that Jesus is the Savior of the world? And I think the answer to that question is no. You see, he had miracle working faith, but he didn't have saving faith. You see, there's a big difference between believing in Jesus as a miracle worker and believing in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. There will be plenty of people in hell in eternity who had no doubt in their minds that Jesus could work miracles. Why are they sitting in hell? Because they didn't have saving faith. They didn't believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord and trust Him with their lives. They didn't believe in Him as Savior and Lord. They had miracle faith, but they didn't have saving faith. Does that make sense? So here in John 4.48, Jesus is much more interested in the royal official having saving faith than He is in Him having miracle working faith. So Jesus' response here in verse 48 really isn't critical or uncompassionate. It's a call to faith. It's a call to saving faith. That's wonderful that you have faith in Me to come and heal your son. But it's much more wonderful, in fact, infinitely more wonderful if you have saving faith because the Word of God makes it clear we are saved by grace through saving faith in Jesus Christ. He doesn't at this point have saving faith in Jesus, but I believe that's going to change in the upcoming verses. The royal official doesn't appear to be offended by Jesus' words. He doesn't storm off in a huff. Instead, in verse 49, he humbly repeats his request. Sir, come down before my child dies. Now, it's clear that his faith in Jesus' miracle working ability isn't perfect. So, at this point, his faith in Jesus, even just that miracle working faith, isn't perfect. I notice two flaws in his faith. Number one, he believes that Jesus has to be physically present in Capernaum to heal his son. Notice he's persistent. Come, come to my home and heal my son. Jesus soon reveals that his miracle working power is not limited by his location or even by a certain time. The second flaw in his faith, the official believes his son has to still be alive in order for Jesus to heal him. That second begging of Jesus, he says, come quickly, come before my son dies. 
He's about to die. You've got to get there fast. But Jesus will later demonstrate that death cannot stop him from carrying out his will. Amen? Amen. Because Jesus Christ is Lord of both the living and the dead. Verse 50. Jesus responds to the royal official's final plea. By the way, verse 50, my favorite verse in this entire passage. Jesus responds to that official's persistence. He says, you may go. Your son will live. Same verse. Notice how that royal official responds there at the second part of verse 50. He took Jesus at his word and departed. Just like that. He took Jesus at his word and he departed. Over the next few verses, we learn that the royal official was intercepted the following day by his servants who relayed the good news to him. His son's fever had left him. Uh, he was as fit as a fiddle when the official uh, inquired as to when the fever had left him. They told him that it had happened at the seventh hour, that's 1 p.m., the prior day, which was the exact time that Jesus had said, your son will live. Isn't that cool? The exact time he had said, your son will live, the fever left him. I think this is pretty interesting. Maybe you didn't notice this at first reading. But he's going home the following day. So let's do the math real quickly. I know Alan likes math. Anyone else in here like math? At least basic arithmetic. I say boo to algebra, but I like basic arithmetic. So, he is in the city of Cana, right? Lives in Capernaum. His son is sick at home in Capernaum. 18 miles away. Capernaum is about 600 feet below sea level. So to go from Cana to Capernaum is a downhill journey. 18 miles. If he was hoofing it and decided to have a pretty good clip, pretty good pace, he could walk home in between four and five hours. Jesus heals him at 1 p.m. He could be home by five or six. He's a royal official though, right? So he most likely had his own chariot. A chariot could make that 18-mile journey in just two hours. He could leave at 1 p.m., be home at 3 p.m. Why on earth does he get intercepted by his servants the next day as he is on his way home? And the only answer that makes sense to me is he truly did take Jesus at his word. When Jesus said, your son is healed, he walked away. And for him, believing was seeing. Believing was seeing. And so he seems to have finished up his business in town there in Cana, went to bed as he had planned to originally, got up the next morning and made his journey home. And as he's making that journey home, it's the servants who intercept him and say, yesterday at 1 p.m., the fever left your son. He was a man walking in peace. Amen? If he was in a chariot, literally he was riding in peace. But isn't that awesome? God can give you the peace that surpasses all understanding. And I've prayed that prayer from Philippians 4 many times for people, whether they were sick, whether they were grieving the loss of a loved one. Sometimes you can't see it with your eyes, but God gives you peace anyway. The royal official couldn't see it with his eyes, but he believed the word of the Lord and he walked in faith. Hmm. I imagine he got a great night's sleep that night because he knew that Jesus was true to his word. According to verse 53, the royal official and all his household believed. Now, verse 53, what kind of belief is that? Miracle working belief or saving faith? 
I believe at that point, it's definitely saving faith. What kind of belief did he have? I believe he and his household had saving faith. They had not only come to believe, all of them, that Jesus is a miracle-working rabbi, but they had come to believe, much more importantly, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And they put their belief in Him. They were saved by grace through faith. And John finishes the chapter by telling us this. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed having come from Judea to Galilee. Now, that's confusing for some, especially when I mentioned a few minutes ago that in John 2 it said when Jesus was in Jerusalem, He performed different miracles. So this is not the second overall miracle of Jesus. He obviously performed other miracles a month or so earlier there in Jerusalem. So why does it say it's a second miraculous sign? Well, read it again. It says it's a second miraculous sign having come from Judea to Galilee. Remember in the book of John, John highlights seven miraculous signs. Jesus performed many more than seven miracles. Amen? If we add up all the miracles that are recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's around 30 miracles. But Jesus clearly performed hundreds during His three-year ministry. But just around 30 are recorded in the Gospels. Only about seven are recorded in the Gospel of John. And He handpicked seven miracles that were signs pointing to a certain revelation about who Jesus Christ is. And so whenever you come across a specific miracle that's highlighted in the book of John, ask the question, what does this miraculous sign point to about Jesus Christ? So you look at Jesus' first miraculous sign, His first sign miracle, turning water into wine. That points to Jesus' power over time and matter. Amen? Not only did Jesus transform the molecular structure of water into wine, He also aged it to perfection. Amen? Think about that. Water into wine. There's a lot going on when you do that. Changing molecular structure from one substance to another and aging it to perfection. So it revealed that Jesus Christ, it's a revelation saying that He is truly the one who has power over time and matter. Well, what about this miracle, this miraculous sign we just looked at here in John 4, healing the official son? Well, I believe this second miraculous sign points to Jesus' power over sickness and disease and His power over space. You see, Jesus can heal any sickness, no matter how deadly it is, Amen? And Jesus doesn't have to be physically present to carry out that healing. He is Lord of both time and space. He can heal anyone immediately anywhere on the planet. Isn't that great to know? We mentioned last week that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, so wherever you go is sacred because you're taking the Holy Spirit with you. You're taking God with you. And so if you've got a friend that's sick over there in Charlotte, North Carolina, great city, that's where I was born. If uh, you happen to have someone sick over there, uh, you don't have to take a flight to Charlotte and physically be in the room and physically lay your hands on them and say, Holy Spirit, now you're in the room, you can heal them now. The Holy Spirit's already there. And so this reveals the truth that Jesus Christ can, in fact, heal anyone, anywhere, at any time. And so the power of prayer is that you can send Jesus anywhere in the world without you physically being there. And you can come to the throne of grace through Jesus Christ and say, Father, have mercy on that person. Please heal them. Please protect them. Please deliver them. Please whatever. Fill in the blank. You can send God there because... 
He is not limited by time or space. What a mighty God we serve. Well, I want to share with you three excellent character traits that we see in this royal official. One of my favorite commentaries on the book of John is the one written by the late Scottish theologian William Barclay. I've quoted him several times during this John series. And in his commentary on John chapter 4, he points out some excellent character traits that we can see here in John 4 in the life of this royal official. And I, I kind of miss these at first glance, but I want to share three of these character traits with you. They're so good. I believe that Jesus Christ wants us to look to this royal official as a role model in several ways for us. So let's look at these one at a time. Character trait number one. He swallowed his pride and came to Jesus humbly. Say that with me. He swallowed his pride and he came to Jesus humbly. Isn't that good? I really like how William Barclay puts it. He writes, Here is a royal official who came to the carpenter. There could be no more improbable scene in the world than an important court official hastening almost 20 miles to beg a favor from a village carpenter. Because remember, that's what Jesus did by trade up until the age of 30. First and foremost, this official swallowed his pride. He was in need and neither convention nor custom stopped him from bringing his need to Christ. If we want the help which Jesus Christ can give, we must be humble enough to swallow our pride and not care what anyone else may say. Isn't that a really good point? Isn't that a great point? It's one thing to believe that Jesus can help you out of your mess. It's another thing to swallow your pride and humble yourself before the Lord and actually ask Him to help. Even when the people around you think you're crazy for trusting in Christ. How many of you have discovered that there are people around you who think you're nuts for what you do for Jesus. Okay? Some of you come with us and you're between jobs right now. Some of you with us today don't even have a permanent home that you're in right now. That's tough, isn't it? And in your situation, there are people who think you're nuts for going to church every week. You've got like nothing to your name. What are you doing trusting in God? What's He done for you? Some people think you're crazy. <laughs> you got some time. I want to tell you what he's done for me. And I want to speak to others of you that when it comes to swallowing your pride, think about the scene. He's a royal official, upper class. Dude's probably got his own chariot. He's got his Gucci clothes. He's got top of the line Nike Airs, man. He's got his Jordans on. He's got his Jordans. He's got his Gucci clothes. He's got his fancy chariot with the spinning rims. This guy's, this guy's got it all, and he's coming to a carpenter. That, that took a lot of humility, didn't it? And those around him in the royal court, if they found out what he was doing, probably were talking about that dude and cracking all sorts of jokes behind his back because they thought he was nuts. What are you doing going to a carpenter? Are you nuts? Are you crazy? I want to speak to those of you who are gainfully employed that according to our culture are middle class we need to understand that there are many in our culture that will not say this, but this is a truth. In our culture, it is believed that the more that you are educated and the higher the class that you're in, the more stupid it is for you to believe in Jesus and prioritize Him with your life. Many believe in the middle and upper class that Jesus is the opioid of the lower class. Jesus is a drug for people who have no money 
and have no other option. But once you get to a place where you've got your own house and you've got your own job and you've got your own steady income, you're a fool to believe in Jesus anymore. And so whatever class you find yourself in, as the culture we live in might classify you, no matter where you find yourself, you will find plenty of peers in your sphere of influence that are going to think you're stupid for humbling yourself and coming to the Lord. But let's follow the great example of this royal official. He didn't care what others around him thought. He came to Jesus anyway. Character trait number two. He refused to be dissuaded from bringing his great need to Christ. Say that with me. He refused to be dissuaded from bringing his great need to Christ. To most people in the crowd, Jesus' response to the officials begging probably seemed cold and uncompassionate. Unless you people see miraculous signs, you'll never believe. Jesus, don't you know who you're talking to? This is a royal official. Didn't you see his ride? It's right out there, out back. Didn't you see that? It's got some bling. You don't talk to a royal official this way. Some of those people might have turned to the royal official and said, you don't have to take this. He's just a carpet. You don't have to take this. If I were you, I'd give him a piece of my mind, turn around and go home. But he doesn't do that, does he? He refuses to be dissuaded from bringing his great need to Jesus. He says something that maybe most in the crowd interpreted as rather rude. He just asks again, please come and heal my son. Please come and heal my son. No one and no thing was going to discourage him from asking Jesus to heal his boy. And I would say to you, no one should be able to talk you out of praying to Jesus and reading your Bible. No one should talk you out of reading your Bible in private or in public. Do you carry this book in public ever? I think you should. Or you say, well, pastor, you know, I don't need to because I've got the Bible app. I've got the Bible app. I don't need to carry my Bible in public. Well, you know what? <laughs> Your phone sometimes has a dead battery. Uh, this never has a dead battery, right? And so, don't let anyone dissuade you from praying privately or praying publicly. I hope I get to run into some of you in a restaurant one day and see you praying before your meal. Not looking around saying, well, these people aren't praying before their meal. Well, I don't want to cause a scene. I'm not going to pray before me. I don't care who's around you. You pray before your meal. I get invited into people's homes and man, they're digging in. I pray anyway. They're uncomfortable with that. Sorry, I'm praying. I'm praying. Don't let anyone dissuade you from praying privately or publicly. Reading the Word of God privately or publicly. Don't allow anyone to dissuade you from going to church and making it a priority every week. There's all sorts of things you can do instead of go to church. Go to church anyway. Make it a priority for you and your family. There's going to be plenty of times you'll have friends say, hey, you want to go to the river for the weekend? Say, great, where are we going to church when we're out there? You're going to have family ask you, hey, why don't you come over for a party on Sunday? Say, great, I'll come right after church. Whatever it is, don't allow anyone to dissuade you from making that a priority for you and your family. We pray and that's a priority regardless of what people think. We study God's Word, that's a priority regardless of what people think. We have faith in God when we're down and out, when we're going through difficulties and trials and hardships and sicknesses. We trust Him no matter what people around us think. You have needs and Jesus Christ is the great need meter. 
So like the royal official, refuse to allow anything or anyone to discourage you from taking your needs to Him. Character trait number three. He had great faith in Jesus. He took Him at His word. Amen? He had great faith in Jesus. He took Him at His word. Say that with me. He had great faith in Jesus. He took Him at His word. Think about how hard that must have been for this man to turn around and walk away as soon as Jesus said, you may go, your son is healed. Your son will... That's some big faith, isn't it? In that moment, he loved his son more than anything in the world and his heart ached at the thought of his son dying. Just a few minutes earlier, he had asked Jesus to come back with him to Capernaum and lay his hands on his dying boy, but Jesus didn't do that. He had expected to personally be in the room when Jesus healed his son. He had expected that when Jesus healed him, he would be able to see the transformation of his boy with his own eyes. But Jesus didn't afford him that luxury. All the man had to go on was Jesus' word, your son will live. And clearly that was all the assurance he needed. It's all the assurance he needed. He took Jesus at His word and He left. He walked by faith and not by sight. You and I need to do the same. At times, God might feel distant from you. At times, He might feel distant from you, but take Him at His word when He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. At times, your physical pain and your illnesses and your cancer might not make sense, but take God at His word when He promises to one day heal all your diseases. One day He will. One day Alan will walk again. If not on this earth, He will in eternity. God promises to heal our diseases. Take Him at His word. God will answer your prayers even though the answer isn't readily available. Even though there's a delay in God bringing that answer, believe that God is a God who hears and answers prayer. Take Him at His word when He promises to hear your prayers of faith and answer them. Ask. And it will be given unto you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened unto you. Take God at His word. You might not see it. You might not hear it. But it's as good as done. Trust Him. Take God at His word. I love how William Barclay says it. He says, It is of the very essence of faith that we should believe that what Jesus says is true. So often we have a kind of vague, wistful longing that the promises of Jesus should be true. The only way really to enter them is to believe in them with the clutching intensity of someone who is drowning. If Jesus says a thing, it's not a case of it may be true. It's a a case of it must be true. It must be true. It must be true. I've been praying for years, specifically by name for certain family members of mine. And I won't mention them because we're going across the internet right now. But I've been speaking their names day after day after day. God save such and such. And God hasn't answered that prayer yet. But I've got to ask myself, are His promises to hear and answer my, true, answer my prayers? Is that a case of they may be true? Or is it a case of they must be true? So I keep knocking on heaven's door. 
I keep asking. I keep seeking. I keep knocking because I believe one of these days Jesus Christ will answer that prayer. Because when He makes a promise, when He makes a promise, it's not a matter of it may be true. For a Christian, it's a matter of it must be true. It must be true. One night, a house caught fire. Family ran out the front door with the little boy in the upstairs bedroom. Couldn't get into the hallway. The flames were too hot. The only thing he could do was crawl out his bedroom window. And so the little boy crawls out of his bedroom window onto the roof. And he hears the voice of his dad calling from underneath. His dad called up, Son, jump! I will catch you! And all the boy could see as he looked down was was the smoke and the flames. He couldn't even see a smidgen of his dad down there. He couldn't see him at all. His dad yelled, Son, jump! Jump! I will catch you! And his little boy yelled back, Dad, I'm scared! I can't see you! His dad yelled back, Son, you don't have to see me as long as I can see you. And the boy jumped right into his father's arms and was saved. Doesn't Jesus Christ ask us to do the same? Sometimes we can't see Him with these eyes. Sometimes we can't hear Him with these ears. With our five senses, we can't take hold of Jesus Christ. But He says, trust me. You don't have to see me. You're going to be just fine as long as I can see you. So He calls us to jump. He calls us to walk by faith and not by sight. With the eyes of faith, you walk in obedience to Him, taking hold of His promises because He sees you. He will catch you. He will see you through. We're going to close this service with this great song, Give Me Faith. As Sophia leads us in singing this simple chorus, I want to invite you to stand to your feet with us. Instead of me leading a prayer, this is our prayer. And I want you to sing this along with us as a prayer. Give me faith to trust what you say. That you're good and your love is great. I'm broken inside. I give you my life. Give me faith.